reading this morning comes from Esther chapter 8 and can be found on page 497 on the Bibles in front of you or in your Bibles or tablets at home. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman, the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamaditha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. Or well, how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush, these orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of the king Zesus, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen, and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them.
Thank you, Sue. Good morning, everyone. Great to see people coming back from holidays. Great to see the church filling up. Let me pray, and uh, we will finish this intriguing book this morning. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the joy you give us in knowing you, and I pray that you'd fill our hearts with joy even as we reflect on these quite intriguing, difficult chapters that finish this story. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I've called this morning's message The Gospel According to Esther, and we will be finishing off uh, this intriguing book today before we start a new series next week. Um, And if I can just say a couple of things uh, before I kick off. Um, For the prayer and fasting week, I've never said this before, but with the heat that we're going to be experiencing, uh, if I can just encourage people to be sensible about fasting, Um, There are limitations we've got physically and obviously when you're not eating that's going to affect you and uh, I wouldn't want people to be in a bad place because of fasting so do be wise about how you engage uh, but do have a go and challenge yourself but just be conscious that uh, we are in very hot humid conditions. Uh, These are the kind of hottest I've seen for quite a while. Um, Secondly, I will be away the next three weeks on holidays, so uh, this is my last message for a while, but uh, I'm looking forward to having a break, but I'm excited to be here finishing off the book of Esther. Um, I want to start with a key question as we think about the gospel according to Esther, and how joyful are you in knowing Jesus Christ? And I say that because when you come to the end of this book, there's a lot of joy in these back chapters, uh, which we're going to come to. Um, And I want us to think about our response of joy as we think about ourselves in relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as you read through the New Testament, one thing that is so striking is the way joy characterises the people of God who know Jesus. And it doesn't matter what the circumstances are, what means they have, what situations they're engaged with, Joy is this underlying emotion that comes with knowing Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. And I want us to think about what is it our personal experience of joy in the Lord? And do we have a joy in the Lord? Because there's no doubt as we finish this book, the Jewish people are rejoicing. And they had a deep joy as they reflected on the victory of God. And as we've said, it's an unlikely story of an improbable heroine, Esther, and her trusty offsider, her uncle Mordecai. And the way through the story, they're used by God to rescue the Jewish people from total destruction from the evil Haman and all those with him who wanted to destroy the Jewish people. And as we've said, the intriguing thing is, though God is not seen or mentioned throughout the book, no doubt he is not absent. And we come to the end. And it is an intriguing finish. In many ways, Esther and Haman, sorry, Esther and Mordecai are safe, but the question remains, what about the rest of the people of God? Because the edict for their destruction was still in play. And so the question was very live back in the day, what would happen to them? And I've got three things I want to go through as we look at this morning. Uh, The first is, uh, if you can just click me on, my click is not working, Michael. Rescue announced, rescue accomplished and rescued remembered. Let's have a thing. If you've got your Bibles there, do open up. Uh, And if you've got them there, we're at chapter 8 and we're starting at verse 3. And we're going to go roughly through to the end of the book. I'm not going to read all the verses, but we are going to look at some of the key ones. 
Firstly, rescue announced. And the previous weeks, what we've seen is Esther and Mordecai, the faithful Jews, have been saved. Haman, the anti-Semitite, has been destroyed and killed. And you would think all are going to live happily after, but the edict still is there. And in the culture of the day, they had a thing called the Law of the Medes and the Persians. And what happened with the Law of the Medes and Persians is if the king made an edict, it couldn't be overturned. It was permanent. And so even though Haman was dead, the edict which the king had signed with his signet ring is still in play. And so all the other Persian people who wanted to eradicate the Jews still have the authority of the king to do that. And so Esther now comes pleading not for her life but for her people's lives. And what she wants is a second edict to be put in place. And that's where we pick things up at the beginning of the reading we had today, Esther chapter 8 verse 3, she again pleads with the king, again she takes her life into her own hands, she goes in uninvited which could lead to her death and she falls at the feet of the king and she's weeping and we read she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agite which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther and she arose and stood before him and so that's what happens. But what happens is, verse 8, now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews as seems best to you and seal it with the king's signet ring for no document written in the king's name and sealed with it can be revoked and so a second edict goes out and you see there in verse 11, I've got on the screen, the king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy and kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. And what this second edict did is it gave the right for the Jewish people to defend themselves against any who would attack. It was not an edict to just destroy people, it was an edict to defend themselves against people who wanted to attack them. And it came into force on the same day that the edict that Haman had put in place would also come into force. And so literally there would be a day that clicked over in the calendar when both these edicts would be live. And those who wanted to destroy the Jews could act on that, but now the Jews have permission to defend themselves. And we read in verse 15, when Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing a royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa, where they were, held a joyous celebration for the Jews. It was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them and so the edict goes out and there's a real sense of complete change all of a sudden people are saying where were the Jews (laughs) we're no longer against them and it's fascinating we don't know what it means when it says they became Jews did all the men line up and get circumcised well we're not told was it more of a political alignment maybe What we do know is that all of a sudden, the Jewish people are the ones who are in favour. And not just in favour, all of the nations and 
the empire of Persia literally spread over all sorts of countries, 127 provinces. They're now turning to the Jewish people and saying, we want to be part of you. And what you see here being enacted are promises that God gave his people at the very beginning of the Old Testament to Abraham, uh, a famous one, Moses, communicated to them up at Mount Sinai when he gave the Ten Commandments. He said, you are to be a priestly nation. They were to be a light to the world. They were to mediate knowledge of God to the nations. And you see this being fulfilled in some way, shape and form here. Queen Esther, Mordecai II in charge, two key leaders, and the peoples of the empire are coming to them. And what you see here in the book of Esther are the whispers and the foreshadowing of what will come later in the story of God, which is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That there will be another king who is an improbable ruler, the Lord Jesus Christ, the most unlikely of figures to sit on the throne, though rejected by all, with his death and resurrection, he has ascended to the throne. And just like this decree from Esther went out to the 127 provinces of Persia, it foreshadows a greater decree that goes out to the entire world, which we know is the gospel. And we are commanded to take this message to every nation, tribe and tongue. And that's the reality of the world we live in today. And what's amazing is just as there was a turning of people to the Jewish nation in that day, the world is turning to the Lord Jesus on this day. I read in the World Christian Encyclopedia, approximately 2.7 million convert to become a Christian from another religion every year. And this is the highest rate of what's called proselytizing, changing religions of any of the world religions. And so every day there's 7,400 people across the world who are coming to Christ. Now these are not people who are already Christians or grown up in Christian households within the Christian framework. These are people changing their religion. And that's the reality we live in today. That the decree of the gospel is going out, it's being announced. And it's great news. And it is bringing people into the family of God. And everywhere people are turning to him and they're finding forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Well, that's the great announcement that was made. What about the rescue that was accomplished? Now, if you've got your Bibles there and if you've read chapter 9, as someone said to me just last night, there's a lot of bloodshed. And you can't get away from this. And I've picked out the more sanitised sections of the chapter to read. Maybe I'm a bit scared, but um, I've picked out what I think are the helpful parts to reflect on today. And there's no way around the violence that you encounter in this chapter. Let me read the opening verses. If you've got your Bibles there, have a look, chapter 9, verse 1, as we think about the rescue that was accomplished. Verse 1 of chapter 9, on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, 
the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables had been turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. The Jews assembled in their cities in all the providences of King Xerxes to attack those determined to destroy them. So it's interesting, Haman's dead, but there's still lots of people who want to wipe the Jews out. No one could stand against them though, that's the Jews, because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And so you could say the fear of God has descended upon Persia such that they do not want to wipe out God's people. And all of the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators help the Jews. So the government is now on the side of God's people because fear of Mordecai, he's now second in charge, had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace, his reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. What we see playing out here is the complete reversal of the wholesale destruction of the Jewish people that Haman had put an edict in place for. And as I mentioned earlier, as modern thinkers, because of the levels of violence that take place here in chapter 9, most of us, if not all of us, will find this both difficult and distasteful. And if you're one of them, I empathise, like I do. I mean, I was just reading it, just feeling just overwhelmed by the numbers of people who are killed, thousands upon thousands. Because you see, what happened was, the date of the first edict and the second edict click over. And because of the first edict, there were literally thousands who wanted to destroy the Jews. But because of the second edict, the King Xerxes had passed, the Jewish people are allowed to defend them, and they've got the support of the majority. And because of Mordecai's rise to power, large sections are now basically helping them. What's fascinating though is in chapter 9 verse 1, you can see it on the screen there, it's also in verse 5, it was because people hated them. It is stunning. This deep-centered enmity against the Jewish people. And so what resulted was effectively a civil war of sorts where the haters of the Jews and the Jewish people took up arms, the Jews, to defend themselves. And in defending themselves, they literally killed their enemies and literally thousands of them across the 127 provinces. They also killed off the family members of the antagonist Haman with King Xerxes supporting the action. And even though the king had given permission to the Jewish people to take plunder, what is revealing is they take none. Let's stop and think about this. The first thing I want to say might shock you. The narrator of the story who wrote this expects us to be cheering, okay? That's the reality. And if you were to go in six weeks' time to a Jewish festival of Purim, which we're going to come to, that's literally what they would be doing. And I'll speak a bit more about that in my third point. But the story of Esther is about the people of God living under an unjust sentence of death due to anti-Semitism and then rescued miraculously by God's sovereign intervention. 
using Esther and Mordecai. And what takes place is not an assault on people, but rather a self-defense against people. I want you to think about the current world situation of conflict to give you a parallel. The history of modern warfare is that attackers have had to be defended against. I was talking to someone just the other day and they were reflecting on their father serving in Darwin, having to defend the country against the assaults of the Japanese planes that came and bombed. Think with me about the Ukraine. I strongly suspect there's not one person here today who would not be cheering for the Ukraine in their efforts to defend themselves against Putin and the Russian aggression against them. And I strongly suspect all of us support the Australian government sending our specialised weapons, uh, the Bushmasters and the other vehicles they're sending over, to assist the effort. Uh, Putin is a dictator who literally just by the rule of might, not law, wants to annex the Ukraine for himself. And they are right to defend themselves. And literally, I am cheering for them. I want them to win. I think it creates a safer world order for us. We don't want to live in a world where literally people think that the right of might enables you to just take stuff. And there, sadly, but soberingly, are periods in history where people must stand and defend against those who would attack. That's what's taking place here. It's not the Ukraine, it's Persia. And it's also worth noting that prisoners and taking them was actually not something that was done and not really possible because you see, it would have required Xerxes the king to look after them. And let me say, Xerxes would have just thought, wipe them out. He wasn't going to help that. There was no capacity in any way with the numbers who were attacking them to do anything else. And what's telling is the Jewish people do not take plunder. And it's significant to observe because three times the king says, take what you want. But they take nothing. Because for them it was not about attacking people and plundering people. It was about defending themselves from people. It is sobering, though, to read. But it does speak of two things. That there is a final day when God's judgment will come because in many ways what the attackers of the Jewish people were experiencing was God's judgment on them. And it reminds us that there will be a final day of judgment for those who will raise their fist against God and no one will be able to stand on that day and everyone who thinks they don't need God will be strikingly exposed, frighteningly exposed. I was talking to someone just after eight o'clock and they said, you know, Stalin, the great dictator, even on his deathbed was shaking his fist against God saying, I don't need him. 
and he, like all others, will face God's judgment. But it also reminds us and looks forward to another death. It wasn't thousands, it was one. And the incredible thing about this death was it was completely unjust. It was the improbable saviour who didn't die for his sins, he died for our sins. And because of his death on the cross for our sins, we are forgiven our sins. And because of his victory over death and his resurrection from the grave, we have eternal life. And we have something incredible to be cheering about which is the death and the resurrection and the promised return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, my friends, should fill us with great joy. And there's a real sense that as we come together every Sunday, there should be a cheering for Jesus because of all that he's done for us. He is our improbable saviour and it is the most improbable victory just like there was an improbable saviour figure in Esther with an improbable victory, we have the culmination of that in Christ. And it should fill our hearts and our voices with joy. We're going to have a go at that before we have the Lord's Supper. Look forward to it. We cheered for Esther and Mordecai last week, remember? We're going to cheer for Jesus today as we finish off this story. But thirdly, rescue remembered. The story finishes this way at the end of chapter 9. Mordecai, verse 20, recorded these events and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar, as the time, as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting of joy, and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. It's very important to see how the story finishes. A festival of remembrance is inaugurated that would be called the Festival of Purim. And it's called Purim or Lots because it's named after the reality that Haman cast a lot for the day when the Jews would be wiped out. And what Mordecai was saying is we're going to remember that he cast the lot and God saved us. Now, on the 5th and 6th of March this year, guess what the Jewish people will be celebrating? The Festival of Purim. Still remembered today. Guess what they'll be doing? They'll be reading the book of Esther. Do you know what they get their boys and girls to do when they read the book of Esther? And I only found this out after 10 o'clock last week, and I heard it from two different sources. They get the boys and girls to what? Cheer when they hear the names of Esther and Mordecai, just like last week. Do you know what they also get the boys and girls to do? Boo, when they hear Haman's name. And in fact, one person said, one group that he'd known of, they have clackers. You know, you clack. And whenever you hear the name Haman, the kids all rattle the clackers so that they blot the name out <laughs> and you can't hear him. And they're rejoicing, not in the bloodshed, but in the salvation that God had saved them. It's interesting as you go forward in the story of God because there's another remembrance that really takes over and supersedes this.
this festival and all the other festivals that are in the Old Testament. And they had a number of festivals that they would celebrate, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when they celebrated God forgiving them. This was a celebration of rescue. They had the Passover, which celebrated that God passed over judgment. And these all come together in the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, who rescues us, and in his death, judgment passes over us, and in his death, we are having our sins atoned for. And on the night before he died, do you remember his words? I've got them on the screen. While they were still eating, Jesus took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And all of the festivals that the Jewish people had been commanded to participate in and remember annually, all find their fulfillment in what we call the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is designed to help us never forget all of these truths that the festivals in the Old Testament look forward to. That God is a God who rescues his people. That God is a God who passes judgment over his people and it falls on his son. That God is a God who forgives and atones sins through his son. And our God is a God who brings new life. And at the death of our Lord Jesus Christ, all of those things took place. And with his resurrection, there is a new life that comes, a victory over death. And that decree is now going out to the world. And we live in the time between the decree going out and the return of the king. And if you go to a traditional Anglican prayer book communion service, and we use that at 8 o'clock, there is a line in the service for the communion and it's an optional prayer and the congregation says these words and I want us to say it this morning and cheer it. It's very simple. Those who've got an Anglican prayer book for communion background will remember this. You literally say to each other these words, Christ died, Christ is risen. How's it go? Christ will come again. And the reason it's done at communion is this, because when you get to 1 Corinthians 11, the Apostle Paul quotes these words we've just read and says, when you remember the Lord, uh, Lord's Supper, this is what we were taught. And he says, do this as often as you meet in remembrance until he comes again. In other words, this is what we are never to forget. And we are to keep doing it until he comes again. So let's practice. Christ is risen. Okay. I'm going to say it, and you're going to respond back. Christ is risen. Sorry. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Okay. We're going to stop. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper as a way of concluding Esther. And have our own festival, in a sense, our own meal of celebration. And I want to say it should fill you with great joy as you come and as you eat and as you drink.
And the reason you should be filled with joy is this, because we're reminding ourselves that God is for you in Christ. That the judgment of God has passed over you in Christ. That your sins have been atoned for in Christ. That you have been rescued and saved in Christ. And his death and his resurrection is what has accomplished all of this. And that's what God wants us to never forget. That Christ is for us. And we are to trust in him with all of our lives and faithfully follow him until he returns. The Apostle Paul says, whenever you do this, what I want you to do is reflect on your own life before you take, before you eat, before you drink. And so we're going to move to the confession prayer. If I can jump ahead to that, Michael. And I want us to just stop and in humility as part of our remembrance just reflect on our own lives and confess our sins because we don't come triumphantly to God. We come as humble sinners knowing we need his death and resurrection on our behalf to cleanse us, to change us and to guarantee us our eternal home. So let's say these words together as a prayer of confession. Most merciful God, we humbly admit that we need your help. We confess that we have wandered from your way. We have done wrong and we have failed to do what is right. You alone can save us. Have mercy on us, wipe out our sins and teach us to forgive others. Bring forth in us the fruit of the Spirit that we may live as disciples of Christ. This we ask in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. And so, friends, may the Lord fill your hearts with joy this day as you remember that Christ's body was broken for you. And as you come and take and eat the bread, remember that his body was given for you. And feast on that. And have your hearts filled with joy at that. And also remember as you come and you drink the cup that the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ was shed on our behalf to cleanse us of all the sin, shame and guilt associated with our lives. And may he fill your hearts with a joy, an unspeakable joy, that you know him and you know you are saved by him. We're going to have four groups, one down here, one down here, two up the back uh, with some of the staff. And we've got our COVID safe packs to uh, administer the communion. And if you can come forward in groups of 10 uh, to these areas, and uh, we're going to remember together and rejoice that God is for us in the Lord Jesus and remember his death and resurrection. Let's just do that. Uh, prayer book saying Christ has died Christ is risen Christ will come again let's celebrate the Lord's Supper together